Welcome to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed, where, as one of our listeners put it, we will be reviewing the game film of the YRR. We've gotten some good feedback early on from just some people reaching out to us, which has been really fun. But indeed, we are watching the coach's film. We are breaking down everything that happened YRR today. Um, I am your Troy Aikman, Matt, calling this, uh, joined by uh, our my co-host, who is the Joe Buck of the YRR, Pastor Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm here. I'm Joe Buck. If I'm honest, I'm not a sports guy. I know these names, but I don't know if that is like a bad thing for me or a good thing. I really don't know. Well, Fox loves Joe Buck. He calls the NFL. He calls the World Series. In our neck of the woods in Wisconsin, he is not well loved because uh, he is often accused of not giving the boys in green and gold a fair, a fair shake. So... Well, then I don't like him. That's Just right. For the sake Take of, that. of state honor, I Take do not that. like him. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as reaching out to us, yeah, it's been fun. I have tried to get a little bit more active on social media in case you were ever looking for me. You can find me on Twitter and that other French-speaking social media app at Klein. Pastor Michael, do you want people to find you on social media at all or... Uh, you can, I mean, you can just search my name on Facebook. I don't have those other things yet. Uh, so I really should. I'm working on it. Give me a break. I'm working on it. I will at some point. That's great. Um, and as always, what we are always interested in are listener emails at restlesspodcasting at gmail.com with any thoughts or feedback. And if you'd like to come on the show, especially if your name is Matt Chandler. But today, we are carrying on in our opening dive deep into New Calvinism or the Young Restless Reformed. Last week, we discussed what Reformed means. We discussed the differences between Calvinism, and I proposed my theory that Reformed theology is a combination of the doctrines of grace, covenant theology, and the regulative principle of worship. This week, we are going to answer the who of New Calvinism, the young. Yeah, do you have any feedback from our last episode or anything coming into this one you want to say? I think this will be important. Uh, as we kind of talked about, both of us were quite young men when we first were exposed to New Calvinism. And uh, that's definitely something that plays heavily into the whole of the movement. Uh, we are still young men now reviewing our younger selves and uh, what we went through with this. So, so I do think it's a, an important element that we touch on. Right. When I first came in contact with New Calvinism, I was not old enough to drink a beer uh, so I could not except engage. in Wisconsin if you were with your parents at the bar it's true but as we mentioned I did not grow up reformed so I grew up we grew up teetotaling it like all all good 
evangelical Christians. Um, yeah, and now we're looking back on what the it means to be young, what, what that meant for the movement. I actually think there is an important first step uh, for us to even think about in the Western culture how much youth plays in our imagination, how we want to feel young, how we want to be young at heart. We, we market youth, we market young. And actually, I think part of what we're going to see over these next two episodes as we talk about the young and the restless, uh, not the, uh, the soap opera, but the, the two parts of the YRR, is the young and restless a soap opera? It is indeed. Also, how did you know that, Matt? Are you uh, a closet fan of said soap opera? Um, no, but I have searched our podcast in the podcast store. And I, as a kid, sometimes was sick at home. And so you had to like, I would get to watch TV. And so you're always looking for something that wasn't a TV judge show or a uh, soap opera. And so those are, that's where I get my Judge Judy street cred and are those still happening? I don't see like soap operas on Netflix or anything like that. Cause you're right. I remember flipping through those things. That's, that's a good question. Um, if you still watch soap operas and you listen to this or judge TV shows, man, judge TV shows, though, that's gotta be a dying, that's gotta be a dead art, right? I don't know. I feel like that has way more going for it than <laughs> soap operas. It might. It might indeed. At least that way you're learning something about the fake legal justice system. So <laughs> I think we're going to, the next two episodes, we are going to come in contact with what is called youth culture. And so I think it's really important that we start with an understanding of what youth culture is and a little bit of how, um, how a bit strange it is historically. So youth culture is a way of describing how adolescents, young adults, some people might say children live, the kinds of norms, the values, the practices they share, right? So it's, 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 it's imagining a certain age group having its own distinct culture. So, right, you know, anthropologically, they have their own shared symbols, trying to maintain norms, systems. And the idea is that it's distinct in that it's different from older generations, right? Obviously, I mean, you're not going to be su surprised. Like it hasn't, if you just, again, imagine what it was like when you were a teenager, right? The emphasis on clothing, popular sports, movies, music, having the right, knowing the right vocabulary, uh, dating, right? Those kinds of things are all, all part of the American youth culture that I remember. Michael, what, what do you, what do you, is there anything you'd add about youth culture? Uh, so it seems to me that uh, when we talk about youth culture, you have to think that this is a modern idea because it just wasn't even possible until the more recent uh, past. You think about what industrialization uh, allowed to happen with the kind of uh, the removing of most most productive activities outside of the home uh, to, uh, you know, you're moving off the farm, you're moving to the factory. Take that as kind of an analogy for the industrialized world. And all of a sudden, you, you don't have, say, the family farm on which no matter how old you are, you have to be working and helping 
uh, and taking part in this venture. Uh, all of a sudden, you're put into a position where, well, you know, mom and dad go out somewhere to work and we need a place for the kids. You have the kind of creation of the modern public education system. And that, like, that allows this to happen because you all of a sudden segregate all of these people of a certain age into one place for a good portion of their you know, years, uh, early years. And so it makes sense that this would, this would be a much more modern phenomenon. Yeah, that is what's really important and why there has been even studies and why there's something called youth culture. Because it is a product of industrialization. It's a product of modernization, right? You probably have heard people say things like, adolescence is something we invented, right? Yep. As Pastor Michael was saying, at a point you were either a child or you were working. There was no, there was no in-between. And so, you know, there are a few theories about where youth culture came from. The one I've, as I looked into this a little bit, the one I found most compelling was that after schooling was standardized and there was compulsory public slash government education, that is where we saw the emergence of youth culture. Because now you were for huge amounts of time surrounded by other people your age and having kind of interactions that no one else had access to. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I haven't actually thought about it quite like this before, but uh, that too, just the, the age segregation uh, of it all is interesting. You even think about, you know, maybe an older model of schooling would have, especially in smaller communities, uh, included much more, hey, you're all in one big room together and you've got a huge variety of ages. Or if you're just kind of, you know, uh, learning on the farm, you've got all of your brothers and sisters, various ages, you're interacting with people at different stages in life. Uh, but now all of a sudden you have a system where you put everybody into one place segregated by their very age. And it makes sense that you would come out with something that is relatively new, historically speaking. Exactly. And yeah, there are other ideas. I think this is by far one of the most interesting uh, the other thing is that's interesting, right? This is where the invention of adolescence comes in, right? Where you are growing into an age where you're seeking some independence, but you are totally dependent on your parents typically for, you know, food, shelter, all your needs are covered. And so you so have you're still, the, you're not an adult yet. That's right. Even if your body is somewhat more like an adult physically. And then the other thing that's interesting is youth culture seems to develop on its own because it's this time when you are trying to develop some level of independence. But then if you distance yourself from your family in this way, the peer group becomes where you, where you go to to look for those kinds of meanings. And so you reach, you, you have this level of autonomy you use your peer group, your school group as, as this secondary thing. And so it becomes this culture. It becomes a time where people have, I guess, lots of good memories. And it becomes a thing that, because it's the culture, you know, right? If you think of this is, this is, I, this, I, this just hit me. If from K to 12, this is the culture you have. Why do we want to feel young? Because the culture we have is youth. 
what is inculcated into me as a cultural value? Youth culture. So why do I want to feel young? Why do I want to relive those things? Because that's actually the culture I was brought up in. I was brought up in that culture. That is my theory. Interesting. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. The, the reason we went down this trip into youth culture is because the young part of this new Calvinist movement wouldn't have been possible without it. And understanding how youth culture began to affect Christianity and our practice of it, uh, it, we couldn't make sense of what happened without it. It makes sense that the church would be uh, influenced by this, uh, that, that the way uh, the church interacts with the culture would be shaped by this kind of modern uh, onset youth culture. But there are cultural forces right outside of the church that are driving some of these things. But I wonder how much of it uh, was really uh, the church itself that kind of uh, drove these trends or helped to push them uh, further into the wider culture, especially uh, thinking back. So I read a book quite a few years ago now called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And uh, it was a fascinating book. I can't remember everything from it. Uh, when I knew we were going to be talking about uh, the young of the young restless and reformed, I went back, I had to search, and I finally found where I'd taken down some of these notes. Uh, but one of the things that I, I had noted in reading this book, and I can't even tell you who the author was, I can't remember. Uh, I can remember kind of what the cover of the book looked like, but I can't remember the author. Uh, but one of the things that this book said was that uh, as you have this kind of, you know, a growing youth culture in the United States, uh, one of the things that evangelicalism or, you know, really most of modern Christianity, but just being an evangelical, you know, I kind of uh, took it in this direction. Uh, most of the evangelical church wanted to uh, find a way to kind of harness this new cultural movement uh, in order to evangelize. And so uh, one thing that this author pointed out was that uh, when you have the onset of, you know, like rock star culture, you have someone like an Elvis Presley coming onto the scene that you had churches starting to try to compete with that by saying, well, actually, uh, Jesus is the real rock star, right? Jesus is the, the, the heartthrob. He's the one you should fall in love with. Uh, he's the really cool thing, not just Elvis. And so there was this idea of let's harness that particular new youth culture and let's use it in the evangelization of these young people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What effect do you think that had on the church? So it makes me think that, uh, so this is happening culturally. I think the church probably had the opportunity to help uh, put a stop to the, the negative sides of this, right? Like it, the church could have uh, helped to disciple young folks uh, into the idea of, you know, growing up into maturity, uh, into the idea that, you know, uh, uh, your worldview should not be shaped primarily by uh, those who are also young like you and have zero idea what the world is like. Uh, you should actually be obeying the fifth commandment 
and honoring your father and mother, uh, which means listening to them, which means obeying them, which means uh, living in such a way to honor them. And uh, in, in trying instead to harness kind of the, the cultural influence that would come with making the church the real you know, place of the rock stars, the real place where, where the real rock concerts happen, but for Jesus. Uh, my, I mean, my personal experience with that kind of stuff is obviously that it's super tacky and lame for one. It's just not done near as well. I read an article once that I believe it was talking about Brad Pitt. Don't quote me on this, but I think it was talking about Brad Pitt. And I think it said, uh, Brad Pitt, you know, this very well-known movie star grew up in the assemblies of God and he left the faith after going to one of his first big rock concerts outside of, of like, you know, kind of Christian circles. And he did it because he said the same experience that I had like at church or at these like youth rallies or whatever, that I was told like, this is God moving. This is the Holy spirit. I might be putting words in his mouth, but this is the idea Uh, that that same feeling that I had, I got at a rock concert uh, by somebody who didn't believe in Jesus and it had nothing to do with that. And so I realized basically that it was all fake. And uh, like that kind of stuff, uh, I think was just an inevitable end point to trying to harness youth culture as the primary means of evangelization. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, we, we will talk more about this, 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 the, the way these cultures interacted, but I think this is important because I think it even helps make sense why the new Calvinists why do they suddenly have platforms with young people? Why is why are R.C. Sproul's books being given to young people? Why is John Piper a right a PhD from who has a PhD from Germany? Why is he speaking to young people? I think it's because the church is speaking to young people and doing different evangelistic things. And so the, the new Calvinists are doing that as well. However, we have not answered maybe one of the more important questions. I think the young in the young, restless and reformed refers to two things. It refers to a attraction that young people seem to be having to this doctrine, right? You know, everyone was acting surprised. Whoa, young people like Calvinism. And two, the predominance of young leaders up front of it, taking it, seeming to take it further. Yeah, so you do have, this is, if you remember, uh, oh, I can't remember if we've talked about this already, but there was a point when John MacArthur, who, you know, at the rise of the young wrestler, how, I mean, he's like, he's like 80, right? He's, he's pretty right. old uh, right now. And so, you know, here is this man in his uh, 70s when a lot of this stuff is up and running. And he had a kind of exhortation to the young wrestlers and reform guys that basically was like, grow up, right? You need to like, you need to mature, you needed to uh, grow. And he was always kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a voice from the outside uh, toward, you know, almost representing an older style kind of, of, you know, evangelical Calvinism, talking into this newer style evangelical Calvinism you know, uh, of where it should go. Uh, and so that's, it's just something that popped into my head, 
uh, while you were saying that. You definitely had that kind of critique coming into the movement from the very beginning. Hey, you're pretty young. You should, you should definitely try to grow up. Yeah. What attracted young people to this? Is, is there a, do you have a, do you have an idea? Is there a reason that attracted people to young, young people in the church to this? So you think back to, uh, to even what I said about how I first found out about this stuff uh, was really through this clip of Mark Driscoll, this rant about tolerance that, uh, like you pointed out, it was kind of like a comedy routine, uh, but it was part of a sermon, right? Uh, you think about what it's like to be young. Uh, you don't have as serious uh, an understanding of life. You don't really have a, a, a gravity uh, to understanding the, you know, the nature of the world. You are much more driven by your passions and, and desires and emotions. And so to, to see people you know, in, in the church from the pulpit uh, who are, uh, they are preaching in a style that really connects to those emotions, mm. right? You're laughing a lot you're feeling extremely like, like emotionally shook up in some way, right? How dare you? There's like this, you know, this high emotional charge to the way things are delivered. And then you add in, especially the, the elements of relevant kind of pop culture, the, the music side of things. You think of, uh, you know, some of the record labels and the people putting out a lot of these uh, kind of, updated uh they're putting out updated praise music where you think about the churches that we grew up in they were very much baby boomer churches right like the the style the the hymns you sing like what was really cool in hip like it was a baby boomer culture right then all of a sudden, having you know grown up in that, you hear this stuff that's like, hey, this is way more, like this is, this is stuff that I would listen to outside of church, mm, but they're singing church music to it, you know, like that's that connects really well with uh, kind of where we were as young folk. I think the two things you just said is, they're talking to me like I talk to people outside of church. Yeah. And, but they're talking to me about things that actually matter. And the music I'm hearing is the music I'm listening to. Right. But now it's, it's, you know, it's how deep the father's love or something like that. Right. I, I think that's, I think that's good. I think the other thing is, probably because the leaders were younger or even if they weren't like John Piper, they were near these, a lot of young people. They figured out how to get their material into the internet space before the rest of the church yes. in a lot of cases. Absolutely. They definitely harnessed the, the newer technology in a way that just wasn't being done. No more mailing CDs. No more pay to get five of my sermons. Um, right. No more just be on the radio. They, they kept blogs. 
they uh, they started using the podcast app many many years before we did. That's right. Um, and I think that I think those are big factors. And I do think maybe one of the big things is, and I wonder if 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 it's just for the same reason. I think part of the thing that happened was somehow it seemed to take over the conference college ministry and even even to probably a different degree though i'm not as familiar like you said the camp the christian camp circuit yeah so basically uh the places the hubs where the young people were right right? where where they are meeting together uh but still within the the kind of christian realm yeah the all of the non institutional church Christian realms. Right. Yeah. So you don't have the, the kind of uh, those in power keeping a high bar to entry in order to be able to, you know, come, you're not coming to speak to my church, for instance, right? I'm not going to let you come speak at my church, but all of a sudden you have a bunch of young people who have access to the internet. They can find this stuff directly. You have the, on the other end, you have younger pastors, who are better at, uh, very good at marketing these things, at using the new technology, YouTube and iTunes and things like that to pump this stuff out. And uh, you basically have then the, the perfect storm for these you know, lower institutional settings where there's not as high a bar to entry uh, for there to be a, a direct connection uh, between these hubs of youth and those speaking to them. And then you find yourself in what we might call the Christian youth culture with an emphasis on clothes, popular music, vocabulary, right? And it becomes, becomes, a, becomes a fit. So the other phenomenon are the young leaders who are able to do this. I am interested to know what you think about this for two reasons. Uh, Pastor Michael, who is one of the pastors at the church where I'm a member, is younger than me. He probably would count as a as a young pastor, but maybe I just don't remember clearly how young the men were, these figures were, didn't hit me at the time at all. I I just wonder if I was so used to the church trying to go young that it was just it was not not a it was not a notable difference yeah it just didn't really matter you simply think about it you think about yeah i i can't remember ever thinking oh this person's too old or this person's too young i'm not going to listen to them it really had nothing to do with that you know you're wearing a t-shirt to preach you're wearing bedazzled jeans you know that sort of thing Uh, That was probably, even if, you know, I would have made fun of that kind of stuff probably even back then, it probably was a bit more, those were the connecting points, right? It was the music, it was the clothing, it was those sorts of things, less so the actual age. So let's, let's do just a little bit of Bible doctrine before we go here. So John MacArthur comes along and being the the fuddy-duddy 
um, the fuddy-duddy fundamentalist. He's, he's so good at that. He, he is. He's he good is at the, playing the part. I love when John MacArthur plays that part, by the way. I, uh, I really do have a lot of respect for John MacArthur. I'm not just saying that as a joke. Like, I actually love when he plays that part. I, I do, too. And most of his criticisms, right? It's like, well, most of those came true, right? So it's, you know, it's, right. you, it's foolish to beat up on a guy who's basically nailing it, right? Um, the, the, the leaders are too young, right? Here's, here's my question, Michael. You are a young pastor. First Timothy 3, 6 says, and I'm going to read it in the King James for the purposes of uh, to be a fuddy-duddy fundamentalist. It says, let him not be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil, right? And to, to read this in the ESV for my previous YRR friends, an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Michael, how do we understand this idea of not taking on a novice, not treasuring young leaders, but obviously you're a pastor. You were ordained by a group of, of wiser older men. Yeah. Question. So, right, I'm just, I'm asking this. So what about you, man? If you want to. Right. Why am I here? That's right. Why, why do I exist? Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt, for that, uh, <laughs> demeaning my humanity. That's right. Why do I got to listen to you? That's <laughs> are you just trying to get out of it? Well, you're my yeah, pastor, but if you are a young man, maybe I don't have to listen. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously, uh, there's uh, a lot of different ways we could go with that. Uh, there is definitely a sense when you think about, you know, the young men in scripture. So you, you just read from 1 Timothy. Uh, this is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a young man in the ministry. Uh, Timothy is often, like he's spoken of as quite young. Uh, he's this, this young man that Paul is training up, who's now a pastor. Uh, he was probably in his like 30s or 40s. Uh, that's what he means by young. Uh, that was, you know, uh, pretty young. And when it speaks about uh, the idea of not wanting a new convert, I mean, think about where you are at now compared to when you... You know, even if you don't talk about, you know, uh, we're not talking about, you know, maybe uh, when you first, you know, said the sinner's prayer or something sure. like that. But when you first began to take the faith seriously, I mean, how long did it take you to get to the point where you were like, well, I might actually kind of start be, to, I, I'm, I am maybe at the point where I'm starting to comprehend the basic doctrines of the faith. Right. I mean, it took a while, right? Like it, yep. it took a long time. And you can, I guarantee you can look back right now and think, how many of these years that I was teaching people, that I was leading Bible studies, that I was talking to people, and I was totally wrong about what I was saying? Right. Like that is a that is a serious uh, serious concern when it comes to youth, because youth naturally comes with less knowledge. It just just inevitably because you're not as old, you haven't had as much time to study, to think, you haven't had as much life experience to uh, understand that uh, you know maybe uh, it's not a good thing to uh, find this doctrine that you think is brand new and tell everybody why they're wrong for not believing it, you know, that first day. Uh, tell everybody why they should have been believing this the whole time, even when you hadn't been up until this point. Right. 
this is, uh, you know, this is what it is like to be a young man in this position. Yeah. Yeah. By God's grace, I'll put it this way. I was kept now all the people listening who knew me, who've known me for the last 10 years are like, no, you, you were like this, but I'll say by God's grace, he kept me away from any microphone or any public platform for the last 10 years. I sat in a little silent box, which is kind of what Paul's saying for right. novices to do in the faith. Think about Paul himself. So sometimes we read the scripture uh, in, uh, you know, in the way that, you know, you read through the book of Acts and you're like, well, I read through the book in, you know, 25 minutes. Uh, well, it took longer than that. Like the, the timeline in the book of Acts, uh, believe it or not, is actually much longer. And uh, Paul himself, I mean, it was, it was something like three years uh, from when he uh, was first converted to when he actually began to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, uh, write the many things that we uh, now have. Before his missionary journeys, and, and really it was much longer before he was uh, writing uh, many of the letters that we have from him. But, uh, you know, he, it's not that he wasn't speaking to people. It's not that he wasn't arguing uh, in the synagogues with people and speaking with them from pretty early on. It's just that uh, he was not put in a place of public ministry uh, where he was approved of by the other apostles and by the church until quite a few years later. And Paul at this time was already an older man. He had a, a huge understanding of the Old Testament. It just took him time to uh, understand how uh, Christ fulfills all these things. And you know, he, he spent time studying and, and preparing in that way. And so uh, if that was true of Paul, how much more us, uh, right? right? So this is where I'm going to plug Presbyterianism uh, for a second. This is one of the downfalls of the young, restless reform kind of movement. And really, it's one of the downfalls of all of American evangelicalism is the lack of proper accountability and, and oversight, the lack of having a proper hierarchy of authority in place. And mm. so, you know, you speak of me. I'm a young man. Uh, I am. Uh, I am not uh, in the category of older men with gray hair. I'm just hoping that I get to be an older man and still have hair at this point. <laughs> uh, and so, yet, even though I'm a younger man, uh, I was ordained by a large group of mostly much older men than me. Right. They were the ones that determined that I should be in this position. I didn't just walk into the church and say, all right, I'm taking over. Right. All right. I'm hitting the pulpit. I can preach. I can do whatever. Uh, it wasn't like that. Right. It was a long process uh, of, of training and preparing and studying uh, that I was to do under the oversight of many others. Even right now, uh, I pastor in a church where there's a senior pastor uh, and uh, Jim, the senior pastor. He's like a father to me. He's very much uh, the Paul to my Timothy. And he's able to guide me and, you know, kind of uh, direct me and direct my youth in a way that is healthy and helpful. Even if Jim wasn't here, uh, my church is not ruled by me. Our church is ruled by uh, the session and the presbytery. But, uh, you know, on the local level, it's the session of elders uh, or the elder board, uh, if you grew up in a more evangelical uh, church. And I am the youngest one on the elder board. And they all have oversight over me. And they are the ones that, you know, get to determine if I preach. And if I did something that was out of line, what I need to do. And, you know, like they are the ones that are governing 
me. And so there's a, there's a proper system of, of accountability and oversight of older men uh, toward younger men. So this is, if you keep reading in 1 Timothy, if you go to 1 Timothy 5, uh, when uh, earlier on, uh, Paul has already talked about how uh, the church is the household of God, right? This is God's house. And so it's supposed to be structured and you're supposed to act in a way as if it were just that, as if it were like a house. And then in, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, you read this, and I am reading from the ESV. It says, uh, speaking to Timothy, as a young man, as a young pastor, uh, how are you as a young man supposed to interact with other people in the church? Right? He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And so you have here this idea that uh, if the church is the household of God, you're supposed to treat others uh, in the way that you would treat your father and your mother, your brother and your sisters. And so even there, you have the, the necessity of, of older godly men, how you are supposed to interact with them, but also then uh, how they are supposed to interact with you, uh, mm-hmm. looking at 1 Timothy 3. You have both sides of that. This week's episode brought to you by the Presbyterian Book of Church Order. We are, I, I think it is interesting. I think what you're pointing out that there is a place, obviously we have to have at least younger leaders in the church because we need the church's generational. It has, there have to be younger people to carry it on. That's right. And but many, you're describing, way, have, oh, go ahead. Well, many have pointed out that uh, in the current state of the church, especially again, kind of looking at the evangelical scene is that's kind of what the young restless and reform grew out of. You have a, especially in those uh, kind of, you know, early days of this movement, you think about how many of the kind of major names and authorities and those who were kind of running things, uh, at least from a, you know, cultural perspective, uh, a meta perspective, most of them were quite a bit older. Uh, these were these were baby boomers, and I don't know uh, if you had this experience uh, within your evangelical circles, but uh, the the passing on of the control of a church from one generation to another is very often not handled well. Uh, it can be extremely messy and extremely difficult, uh, and so it could also be. And this is just me, you know, kind of thinking out loud here, uh, but it could also be that there was an element of there was a need for kind of the next generation to step up anyway. There was a vacuum that was kind of waiting and it was just done in this kind of weird, obscure way instead of being done in a much more organic and healthy way. Yeah. That, that is really interesting. And, and so you're, you're saying, right, of course there is a need for younger leaders. There are qualifications. There are, giftings of course that come along with it and then there is a a definite need for accountability over the young as they step into these roles i think we might have found what was missing in the young restless reform movement as we get as we continue to dig into this i think it in large part 
we've already talked about it operating outside of the institutional church. I think it ran more like ecclesiastical entrepreneurs yeah. than what you're talking about. Older men passing it on. And, and you might be right that there was a, um, a... Yeah, so how many of the big names within the Young Restless and Reformed, you know, the, the, uh, of the younger ones, right? Because you do have kind of the fathers of the movement a little bit, right? right. You have kind of, you know, John Piper. Right. MacArthur was kind of there, right? Like he was kind of hovering over the scene. There was a connection there for sure. Mm-hmm. You have R.C. Sproul. Like they're, they're connected in that often they're kind of referred to, they're brought in for conferences, but they weren't necessarily like the, the cool hip ones kind of driving the scene. Right. And how many of those younger guys uh, were, how many of them had the story of, I had to just put this thing together myself. Like I built this thing through sheer willpower uh, and that's how it came about. And, and then the emphasis on church planting and you should go put this together somewhere yourself too. Right. The church planner. I don't know. Did you ever read uh, Darren Patrick's, uh, what was it? The church planner, right? The man, uh, the, wait, the, the, the mission, the man, the field, what, I, I don't remember how, yeah. what his little tagline was, but it was all about like, you're this amazing, like, you know, it's kind of focusing on you and it preached the gospel. And, you know, I did read it. It, you know, it did, it, it had some good gospel truth in it, but it was very focused on it, right? You are the one building the church. You are the focus of what this is going to be. Whereas biblically, Jesus builds his church. Jesus calls his officers jesus gives gifts to his people and those gifts like the cross are humble they are not necessarily flashy pastor jim is a gift to michael and everyone in the church and this is the call for for young leaders is to to know to assert, to seek the blessing of the church, to know if they are called to serve God rather than throw together what they can and, and promote themselves online. Thanks again for listening to the Restless Podcast. If you want to stay forever young, make sure you rate, review, and share this episode. And get excited, we've got bonus content coming in the third part in our Young, Restless, and Reformed series. And we may need to do an entire John MacArthur show because he was a notable critic. Uh, he, uh, he uh, yeah. I'm... There was like that run-in with uh, Driscoll where Driscoll like came to the Cessationism Conference. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Man, that's why this that just is, takes me back. <laughs> that's why it could be a whole other show. And I thought Driscoll was just the champion of the world going to <laughs> take him down. Um, so